0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are bringing you the first epistle of Peter, and maybe next year we'll bring you the second epistle of Peter and its close companion, the letter of Jude. But today, it is First Peter and only First Peter, and the first question is, did Peter write this letter? Dad, what do you think?
1: It's somehow connected to the tradition of the Apostle Peter, that's for sure. Uh, But did Peter himself compose it? I think there's internal evidence in the text of 1 Peter that minimally his cohort Silvanus was the um, scribe who put it down. And we know from uh, historical evidence that this is probably an allusion to the Silvanus who accompanied the Apostle Paul on his journeys. And that would account for a lot of the Pauline expressions and phrases uh, in the text. So minimally, uh, while the Apostle Peter might stand behind the letter as the inspiration of it, maybe even Uh, The uh, preacher of it, though in his um, Galilean Greek, uh, which has been rendered into pretty sophisticated literary Koine Greek uh, by the scribe, in this case, uh, Silvanus, um, we can't say that the apostle Peter is directly the uh, pen to paper author of 1 Peter. Now, more broadly, Um, there are reasons to doubt that 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 would date this letter. It's something like during the reign of Nero in in the 60s of the first century. And there is some internal evidence in the letter that it's referring to a much later situation um, in early Christianity, maybe in the 80s or 90s, because it's addressed not to the Jewish congregations that Peter would have been the apostle to, the synagogues who had become converted to Christianity, but the letter is addressed to Gentile converts to Christianity in modern-day Turkey. And that was not a place of the historical Apostle Peter's mission field, at least we don't think it was. Uh, So that lends kind of to a hypothesis that uh, I find attractive, that at the end of the first century in the Church of Rome, oh, by the way, code language is used in the letter, that uh, it is being written from Babylon. And we know at this time in history that Babylon was code language for Rome. And um, we can kind of hypothesize that Peter and Paul had both died as martyrs in Rome under Nero in the 60s. And uh, even though they had quarreled historically in their own lifetimes, Paul famously records their quarrel in second chapter of Galatians, um, the church looking back saw that their quarrel was overcome by their shared martyrdom in Rome under Nero in the 60s. And so the Church of Rome inherits the traditions both of Peter and of Paul. And by the 90s of the first century, we see in first the first epistle of Clement, who was the bishop of Rome, this attempt to unify the apostolic witness of Peter and Paul um, uh, and to claimed the early Catholic um, understanding of the unity of the church in this reconciliation by martyrdom of Peter and Paul. And so that would put the composition of First Peter into the vicinity of First Clement in the 90s of the first century in Rome.
0: Okay. Well, so that could very well be, um, I have to say whenever I have read first Peter before, um, if, uh, Peter's self-description and acts of being an unschooled, an ordinary man apply, then it seems very unlikely that, that, that same person could have composed first Peter, even in English, it comes through how literary and sophisticated it is. So I always assume that it it had to be, um, pseudonymous, you know, the, the way, um, probably the, the Timothy letters are, or, um, or Colossians or, or something like that. Um, and the commentary that I read by Peter Davids, um, he proposed the, the, what you said at at first that, um, Peter stands directly behind it, but Silvanus slash Silas is the one who actually composed it. He said, you know, maybe, um, the Silvanus came to Rome, which would not have been an unlikely thing to do, and informed Peter about what was happening with the believers in uh, Asia Minor, which is now the nation of Turkey. There were no Turks there at the time. And um, and so it was out of a, a sense of um, compassion and concern for them that Peter addressed them. And that kind of is connecting together the opening verse to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and then from the last chapter... By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And like you said, that would account for the slight but not overbearing Paulinisms of the letter that Silas would have, Silas Silvanus would have written in the style he was used to writing down things for Paul or had heard uh, from Paul's way of talking. He might have thought, this is what an epistle from an apostle is supposed to sound like.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: um, but but it does mean it would have to be fairly fairly early in the 60s um i like this theory mainly just because of its um simplicity <laughs> and and straightforwardness it correlates to what it says um though again i i don't know enough about the historical reconstruction how plausible it is but the real reason i like this theory dad is because this is addressing a pretty much entirely Gentile audience. As we already know, Asia Minor had very few Jewish communities in the places where the Christians went. And the fact that uh, if Peter is behind this, that he would have been addressing Gentile believers with Israelite language and not evincing any tension or uncertainty about whether they counted, that for me would be evidence that old Peter finally came around in the end and uh, all of the, the conflicts that are recorded in an um, optimistic vein in Acts and in a much less optimistic vein in Galatians had met with some resolution. So I, I fully acknowledge that is a wishful thinking reason for liking this theory of authorship. But, you know, we we have to deal with hard reality so often in life. Why not have a little wishful thinking here about about Peter <laughs> coming around on the Gentiles?
1: Right. Well, of course, that's what we call confirmation bias in uh, scientific studies, isn't it? Um, the uh, the uh, of course the the fact that in the 90s the uh, the Church of Rome would have in Peter's name an epistle addressed to Gentile Christians would be doing exactly the same work of asserting the reconciliation of Peter and Paul uh, under the auspices of the Church of Rome, which then from First Clement onward conceives of its its seat. Uh, as having a ministry of unity to the whole church. But we don't really need to decide the authorship issues to get at the meat of the epistle, which is very interesting in its own right.
0: Yes, this is immensely rich as uh, I was taking notes on it. I, I uh, One great thing about taking notes, actually, on a book of the Bible is it slows you down and suddenly you realize that one gem after another is being flung at you and you can hardly hold them all. So let's start in chapter one with, uh, in, indeed, in verse one to this wonderful phrase, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And that caught me, Dad, this time around in a way it never had before. First of all, because it is a catacristic metaphor. Like Christ yes. crucified, yep. which sure you have talked is. to us. Yeah. You've talked to us before about those, the, the metaphor that seems um, nonsensical or paradoxical, but breaks through to a new reality. Uh, how can the elect people of God be in exile? Why? In fact, that is a very deep Old Testament question. And now it's being applied also to the, uh, the church. Um, dad, I was so taken with this that actually I got an entire sermon out of it. Um, this <laughs> yeah. year in, uh, in, uh, Easter season, there were a bunch of readings from first Peter and I, the reason it, it struck me so much, uh, especially where I am is because my congregation <clears throat> is composed of about, I don't know, about half the people who, who worship are Japanese and just the way, because Christians are such an incredibly tiny minority here and the way, um, converts are often regarded to become a Christian in Japan in a sense is sort of to become an exile within your own lands. An elect exile and baptism, but still an exile. And then uh, likewise, all the other people are foreigners who have come here, so they are in some way, whether chosen, uh, though some not chosen, are living in exile from their homelands, which they cannot go back to, or for other reasons it's difficult to go back to, but they are also the elect who are coming to worship. So this is just it turned out to be a very rich source for understanding even specifically our own congregational situation. So I was, I'm very excited by that.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. Chosen to be exiled is kind of the what it means. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later because a lot of modern readers take terrible offense at first Peter for its, uh, its instructions, its paranetic instructions uh, for believers to accept their station in life and submit to the existing authorities and and so forth. And, and uh, that really strikes a nerve against uh, the democratic consciousness of the modern Western Christian reader. What you mean? It's just because I've was born a slave, I got to stay a slave forever or something like that. I mean, that's the objection. Um, But we have to put on our historical imagination, I think, to understand this a whole lot better, because it reflects a very deep tension in the Christian message, which on the one pole, the incarnational pole, always wants to be incarnate in the culture, in acculturated assimilated into the native culture and how much we heard in the last generation, especially from African theologians wishing to cast off all the Western baggage that the gospel was clothed in in order to have indigenous forms of African Christianity. I suppose that's true in Asia as well. Um, On the other hand, you have the, the other pole of the Christian dialectic, that the incarnate one was crucified uh, by the powers of this world and his vindication is the undoing the usurping of the usurpers the uh, subversion of those very authorities so we i think we'll find in 1 peter exactly this dialectic that on the one hand the early christian community is to be acculturated it's to be take root in the existing culture, just as it is. And on the other hand, that the way in which it enculturates is exceedingly subversive of the chief and dominant values of that culture.
0: In fact, it's exactly what we were talking about in the last episode about Melanchthon and our ambivalent feelings about what Melanchthon is doing. It's exactly that polarity, that that uh, yeah, that's what it means to be an elect exile. <laughs> <laughs> right. You are, you are in and not of. Wow, how do you pull that one off? That I know that's Paul's language, but it's it's similar here. John's so just la- uh, that, two John,
1: more. That, wait a minute, that's John's language, in but not of.
0: Oh, is it? Oh, I think. Oh, I was thinking of. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. That's yeah. Paul.
1: Jesus says in the farewell discourses, "In the world, but not of the world." Yeah.
0: Okay, all right, well, you know in in pious talk, we're allowed to jumble up our sources. We don't need to be so strictly keeping them apart. No
1: that's illicit harmoni that's illicit harmonizing. We have to be more critical than that <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, moving right along then. So just two more preparatory com- uh, comments uh, as- before we proceed any further. Um, uh, one thing about First Peter that is striking is that uh, per unit of text, which is a funny measurement, there are more Old Testament quotations and allusions here than any other New Testament book except Revelation. Uh, and Revelation does it much more by allusion than quotation. And it's about equal with Hebrews. So that is one thing that is maybe a little bit distinct as compared to Paul, it is more Old Testament dense than Paul's letters are. And also, because I am always um, interested in helping people see the biblical roots and pressure to create the doctrine of the Trinity, there is language of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this letter. Um, Not surprisingly, the Spirit gets the fewest mentions. Uh, Jesus comes about in the middle and God uh, slash the father gets the most, but in fact, it is how the letter opens after the, you know, the address to the addressees, uh, Peter continues. I'm just going to say Peter, dad, for the sake of simplicity. Sure. Yeah. According to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood.
1: Yeah, that's there. You've got it. The economic Trinity. Sure. And notice here that the sanctification of the spirit includes both the new obedience uh, under the lordship of Christ and the um, status of forgiven sinners under the sprinkling with his blood. So in terms of the doctrine of justification, it is both the imputation of righteousness, the free forgiveness of sins, and it is the Spirits um, um, work uh, to create new creatures uh, who are concretely followers of Jesus Christ uh, obedient to his lordship.
0: It is amazing how already this this early in in Christian thinking and writing the as you said the economic d- Trinity is on display the the distribution that we are used to foreknowledge with the Father and sanctification with the spirit and um, obedience and blood <laughs> with Jesus.
1: Yeah, right. Obedience, of course, of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus Christ, of course, is his righteousness, which is imputed to believers in faith. Um, But it is also then for our obedience to Jesus, who was obedient for us. And that kind of exchange occurs frequently in 1 Peter, the righteous for the unrighteous and so forth.
0: Hmm. yeah I was I was um really struck by how much that that is there in fact there are, are a lot of things again slowing down um that I noticed here and um one well let me just go through a few of them that that show up already in this first chapter is um here Peter speaks of being born again I'd always associated that strictly with John chapter 3 but actually twice in this letter uh, Peter talks about being born again though he specifies born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so my being born Born again is linked to Jesus' resurrection. Um, and then he talks a couple of times in this first chapter about salvation. So very, very clearly, I know we, we just take it for granted that the New Testament is about salvation, but there's lots of language being used here. Very specifically, we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what we also see there is that faith is is the uh, deposit or down payment. That's, again, using other New Testament language. But not the salvation is promised, and it's guaranteed, but it's not yet here. So uh, to talk about being saved now, a little bit misses the point. You've been born again to a new hope through the resurrection, but the salvation is going to be revealed. And a little bit later in... Um, verse eight or nine, he, he talks about obtaining the outcome of your faith, that is the salvation of your souls. So there's a very clear linkage here between faith and salvation, but salvation is not yet complete.
1: Salvation is future. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's very consistent with the historic apostle Paul's, Paul's uh, testimony. Yes, I think that's exactly right.
0: Well, I just I'm saying this partly cuz um, you know, American Christianity has this um born again is my my date and experience and I am saved right now. And this is a tri- uh, connecting being born again to something Jesus has done and that salvation is promised but it is in the future.
1: Well, and that's right. And then if you if you're instructed by 1st Peter and if you're asked, are you born again, you would say uh, yes, I've been baptized. And then, if the counter question was, "Well, are you saved?" Then you would be able to say, "Because I'm baptized, I hope to be."
0: I, I have been promised to be, uh, but it is uh, no. In a sense, nobody is yet. <laughs> it's it is awaiting the the final apocalyptic outcome.
1: And and you know that that is that connects immediately to the trials and testing and sufferings of the congregation to which First Peter is addressed. Because if you had if you had already attained salvation you would not be under this duress you would not be under this trial and testing because the whole world would have been reconciled and renewed that's what salvation means in the New Testament it doesn't mean that I individually have a personal relationship to Jesus though I wouldn't you know necessarily knock or, or mock the idea that I have a personal relationship to God through Christ. Um, But it's just this reduction of the gospel to my personal feelings that is objectionable, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, you know, there there is virtue in using biblical language accurately and precisely here. So we're, yes, we're not against those who have a personal relationship with Jesus, but invoking the language in a way that actually obscures what the New Testament is trying to say. And I think it is very important that between these two references to having faith toward the future salvation in between is when Peter mentions trials, he mentions testing trials, twice. And he says that they are for the sake of the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which again is a future forward thing. Uh, so that brings me to, to, a, a, another observation, which is how much glory language appears in this letter and how much it is apocalyptic and that is forward-looking eschatological. And, um, this is for, for all of the you know household code codes which we are going to get into this is a letter for the end times explicitly it says it's a letter for the end times so there is is definitely this forward looking to the glory at the future revelation of Jesus Christ not uh, you know a scriptural or in you know written down revelation of Jesus Christ
1: right the 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 revelation of Jesus Christ to Peter and the apostles was not public it was to the chosen witnesses. That's what the book of Acts says. And Paul repeats that idea in 1 Corinthians 15. So they all look forward to the parousia, the the so-called second coming of Christ in glory, because that's the public revelation of Christ. The public revelation of Christ is still not yet. It's awaited. It's expected. That brings with it the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment, the the eschaton of judgment, which sets the whole world right again.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's worth remembering that in jewish expectations at the time so far as we can reconstruct them they thought that um they did not ever expect one single person to be raised from the dead in the midst of history they didn't believe in a resurrection they thought it might be a restricted number but it would come at the end so definitely expecting resurrection definitely expecting resurrection of a righteous person or persons but not midstream (laughs) so so this is part of how how there, I think, you know, if Peter stands behind this, is trying to connect this Jewish expectation with the um, unanticipated weirdness of, of one man who also turns out to be Messiah and also happened to be crucified, having been raised, and then history proceeds onward. So clearly there's another another act yet to unfold in this yeah, story. that's
1: all mind-boggling, and it took generations to understand it, and we're still struggling to understand it, aren't we? <laughs>
0: I was going to say, do we understand it now? Yeah, really. (laughs) Okay, so to move on then... Peter refers to the prophets, so again, making this connection to the Israelite past, who anticipated both the grace that the congregation has received and the sufferings of the Christ, which they knew by the Spirit of God. That's another spirit reference there. And he then, Peter talks about the good news being preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So again, the Spirit is the source of being of preaching um, and of knowing the truth about um, the true truth about christ and what the prophets anticipated and of course it's a very very charming and um uh uh, curiosity um evoking statement things into which angels long to look you're kind of like why can't they
1: (laughs) (laughs) well the seraphim cover their their eyes and their ears don't they
0: well then uh you know but but we just stare gap-mouthed at jesus (laughs) (laughs) right
1: uh, okay yeah
0: So anyway, then there's some exhortations. Prepare your mind, be sober, set your hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Leave your old ways. A reference to you shall be holy for I am holy. That's from Leviticus. The father judges impartially time of your exile. It's just like one, you know, weighty phrase after another. You you could like practically preach one, one little, uh, uh, phrase at a time all the way through this. Um, What I want to jump ahead to is uh, towards the end of chapter one, Peter uses the language of having been ransomed, and it is elutrothete, um, which has the lutron root word in Greek. That is the word that Mark uses in his gospel when Jesus talks about uh, the Son of Man being a ransom for many. Yeah, and we know that there's a well there's a historic association of the Gospel of Mark with the Apostle Peter. There's a reference to Mark at the very end of this epistle which probably is at least some of the reason for that. But I was I was struck by that a, a very specific uh language about what Christ did appearing both in Mark's Gospel and in Peter's epistle. What do you make of that, Dad?
1: Well, the metaphor of ransom is very important here. You know, we think of that in contemporary uh, the contemporary society, if there's a kidnapping, and the kidnappers leave a, leave a ransom note. So that's the, the price you have to pay to set free someone who's been unjustly imprisoned, right? That, or you re, you can ransom someone from, from indentured servanthood or, or from prison or something like that. So that, that's the notion of, 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 the rude notion of ransom, which is, therefore a motif of liberation rather than of reconciliation. I think that's important to understand. The, the metaphor here is one of liberation, not exactly reconciliation. The idea that Christ was put forward as a sin offering, um, as in Romans 3 or something like that, that's an idea of reconciliation, that somehow Christ's death uh, reconciles the holy God with sinful humanity. And you have that idea later in 1 Peter, where he talks about the righteous dying for the unrighteous and so forth. But here the notion of ransom is the idea that somehow Christ's death uh, delivers us uh, from the thrall of this wicked and perishing world.
0: Well, it is a little vague about to whom the ransom is being paid, which undoubtedly is why a few centuries later, Gregory of Nyssa would develop his whole idea of uh, tricking the devil to try to make sense of this. Right. So what Peter says is you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So uh, assuming that that is a very obvious reference to Old Testament sacrifices, then that would mean that the offering is being made up to the father, because that is God, the father, that is to whom Israelite sacrifices were made. And, um, I'm also struck there by the fact that he talks about a lamb and then immediately talks about this being foreknown before the foundation of the world, which is the exact language that Revelation uses for talking about Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I have no particular reason to associate this letter with the John, the author of Revelation. So maybe this was just in the air at that point, but I was surprised to see that um, that overlap there.
1: You know, the idea of ransom then could be Reconciled, as it were, with the motif of reconciliation, uh, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, invoking the atonement theology of the uh, of the of the Torah, uh, that could be reconciled in this way, that we are imprisoned under the wrath of God, that the the devil's tyranny is simply an expression of the righteous wrath of God against sinful humanity or something like that. And so the ransom could be both a liberation from the devil's tyranny and at the same time a reconciliation with the holy God provided by the holy God on behalf of those who cannot reconcile themselves.
0: I think that's really important to emphasize because God gave the sacrifices to the people of Israel so that they could be reconciled to one another. So I, I think that's it, that's spot on. That's how reconciliation and ransom or sacrifice come together. Also, Peter says, not with silver or gold, which uh, isn't it in, in Acts 4 or 5, Um, when Peter and John are addressing the paralytic, they say, yeah. I-, I offer you not... Yeah. So that also there's there's some some deep connection happening there. And but the way I knew it first is not from the Bible, but from Martin Luther. Very typical, <laughs> because Luther uses that in the second article of the Creed's explanation that uh, he he has redeemed me a, a lost and condemned person, not with silver or gold, but with the, the holy, innocent, precious blood. And
1: precious blood. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Luther picked up on, on that as well. And then Peter wraps up this, uh, Christological passage with, uh, Christ being made manifest in the last times. That is evidently now Peter's time for the sake of you who are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So, again, notice um, the for the sake of, um, that is a very important passage, obviously, one also that Luther would pick up on and love very much, emphasizing believers in God, so making the connection to faith again. And then here too, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. This epistle is very, very much about. Resurrection. It's certainly talking about trial and testing, and of course talks about Christ crucified, but it's much more, I, in my reading anyway, it's much more resurrection-oriented, and I wonder if in, in some sense... Peter's um, pastoral impulse towards people who are suffering and really struggling to make sense of it is uh, his judgment is that they don't need to be reminded of the crucifixion of Christ because they are living it so intensely. What they need to be reminded of is the resurrection of Christ and the promise of glory that awaits them. Oh, I'm curious what you think about that.
1: Well, I think it was almost a cliche of theology in my generation, my training, at least going back to seminary. That the cross and resurrection of Christ constitute a unity, and you can't separate the one from the other. And I think that's exactly what you see throughout First Peter. Is that the um, the um, interpretation of suffering in First Peter is predicated upon the hope of the resurrection, and that's why the epistle can exhort believers uh, to submit and be patient and endure, because that very interpretation of their suffering uh, on account of their faith in Christ immediately implicates them in the hope of resurrection.
0: All right. Well, we'll keep tracking it as we go through. Uh, I, I, it seems to me that you didn't do a, a like a count or anything. But it seems to me there there's a more recurring emphasis on resurrection and glory as as something that's meant to encourage here than I normally associate with the other epistles. But okay. Okay. So as as we move from chapter one to chapter two, Peter wraps up with an exhortation to love earnestly from a pure heart because you were born again. Second use of that of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So an emphasis there on the active power of the word of God to create new life, new spiritual life. Um, And then by contrast to that positive exhortation, there is a negative exhortation to get rid of community destroying vices like malice, deceit, insincerity, and envy. Notice this is not an appeal to the really gross, obvious stuff that pagans and Romans like to do, but they're much more subtle sins that tear apart the fabric of a community. And he uh, has an allusion to pure spiritual milk. We know that from the Pauline letters as well. Um, And an allusion to Psalm 34, because you have tasted that the Lord is good. Any comments there before we start talking about stones, Dad?
1: (laughs) No, we're going to move to the metaphors of stones, because I think it's important simply to point out that Peter is very concerned about the social nature of the Christian faith, that as much as this might be personally appropriated, it's always appropriated in the context of being a member of the new community of Christ, which is what the transition now is to living stones.
0: Okay. Okay. So we have a bunch of metaphors here drawn directly from the Old Testament, talking about, uh, we. Uh, I'll say what they are, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm one eighteen twenty-two. Uh Boy, the New Testament loves Psalm 118. You get a lot of that. And then Isaiah, again, uh, chapter 8, verse 14. So we have the cornerstone that is chosen and precious. The rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. Um, I imagine that uh, Peter was so well trained in the scriptures of Israel that um, the stone idea came to mind, and he could quickly rack his brains uh, without having to use um, an online concordance like I always do, <laughs> and could suddenly like was riffing off uh, one after another and like seeing how beautifully they all came together to talk about Christ, to talk about Christ's followers, and to talk about the difficulty of all the people out there who ought to believe in Christ, but don't. And they all come together in these, these three stone metaphors.
1: That's just great, Sarah. These, these allusions just tumble off of his pen, I guess you could say. and that But that points out to the fact that First Peter is just surfeit with not only scriptural allusions, but allusions to early Christian liturgy. That, I think in the next couple of verses, you'll see a piece of that um, referring uh, to uh, the baptismal liturgy.
0: Yeah, it, 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 then it proceeds right onward with even more. Um, he says, by contrast uh, to th- those who disobey the word, uh, he says, as they were destined to do, slightly alarming there. <laughs> he says, but you, you, the, the congregation, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. So this declaration of who they are, this is very much reminiscent. I mean, almost identical, really, to the um covenant language of between the people of Israel and right. the Lord God. Mm-hmm. And and it's so it's again, uh, this this is why I like the idea. <laughs> this is really Peter offering it to the Gentiles and saying, Sure, you're part of the holy nation too. You're you're the royal priesthood, no problem. Um, but then there after, you know, in a very classic New Testament. Testament paradigm, it goes from the declaration of who you are, your new status or creation in Christ. Then there is an implication that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as always, when there is a covenant relationship established, however unilaterally by God's mercy, he does ask you to do something. And uh, there is a new task that you are called to in your life. In this case, the proclamation
1: yeah also the doxology proclaiming the excellencies of god who called you out of darkness i mean that's that's what all the doxological language of the church is really all about look at the psalms of praise in israel that are and this is again being applied to the congregation as a social unit you you are not a priest for yourself but you all are a chosen race together you are a royal Priesthood and a holy nation, a people, not a, not a, a collection of individuals, but a people, for God's own possession, right? And your your raison d'etre is the praise of God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you.
0: Did you say raison d'etre?
1: That's what I tried to say. Yes.
0: <laughs> okay, Descartes. It's pronounced raison d'etre
1: raison d'etre you can paste that in
0: nope no we're just gonna leave this as it is okay so moving on uh, actually, and I, I just want to linger here over the royal priesthood language because this is exactly where Luther draws the idea of the priesthood of all believers. And in the overall usage of the, the terminology of priest in the New Testament, priests either refer to the specific office of Jewish priests who are serving in the temple in, in the, the long standing ways or it refers specifically to Christ and specifically in the priesthood of Melchizedek in Hebrews, or here it refers to the entire chosen people to be priests before God. So that is why, incidentally, for those of you who may not know, that's why Lutherans and other Protestants stopped calling their clergy priests, except for the Church of Sweden. I don't know what's going on with them. but um, And that is why we talk about the priesthood of all believers. That does not imply the pastorate or ordination of all believers to Public authority in the church. For us, uh, for Lutherans, uh, priest is a term that is a a coterminus with being a baptized believer. It is not a specific office like an ordained pastor is.
1: Uh, But I beg to differ. The Church of the Augsburg Confession in Slovakia still refers to its ordained pastors as priests.
0: Do they too? I I thought they said um, Fana.
1: No, Knaz.
0: Do they use both? But they don't... They use really? both, yes. Well, they're wrong. Well, they, they must be <laughs> infected by the Swedish virus.
1: <laughs> Actually, that's true. Nathan Soderblom visited Slovakia in the uh, early in the 20th century and uh, spread his gospel there.
0: Well, 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 there you go. There you go. Actually, when I was in Sweden recently, um, when I referred to myself as a Lutheran pastor, it made them all crack up because they're like, how can you be a Lutheran pastor? Aren't you a Lutheran priest? Right. And I was like, what are you talking about? For them, pastor is a term that only applies to free church clergy. They don't yeah. use it at all. Of, uh-huh. of, uh, so anyway. Okay. Well, anyway, obviously Luther in the New Testament is right. The Swedes and the Slovak are wrong. So let's just move on now. Um, and to to wrap up this section, Peter also alludes to Hosea's, um, you know, the once you were uh, Hosea, you know, naming his kids not a people, you know, not my no mercy, and then you know when things get better with him and his curious marriage, <laughs> then it's again you know, now now you are a people now you have mercy. So Peter draws on that as well. He talks about uh, sojourners and exiles, and now we're getting into the the, um, the textured part for the local situation. But I think it's really important to see how deep and rich the doctrine of God and the Christology have been so far. He's just throwing it at us, this very... Um, fantastic tapestry of understanding better who the God of the gospel is to build us up so we are prepared to deal with what we're gonna face in ordinary life. So he's saying now to these sojourners and exiles, these elect exiles, that you should keep your conduct conduct honorable. Why not to please God or to earn your salvation, but to show up your accusers on the day of visitation, which is an allusion again to Isaiah and um, actually Jesus picks it up in Luke 19. And then we get into this these uh, passages that people hate. <laughs> so we'll just dive right in now. So we're ta- Peter talks about submission for the Lord's sake, very interesting, to the emperor, to governors who punish evildoers. Uh, notice that that is a little bit of reservation about the governors. They have to actually do their appointed job of punishing evildoers, not letting them off the hook or punishing the innocents. And But he says again, you know, show up your accusers by living as people who are free. Don't exploit your freedom. And then he has a summary statement, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, but implicitly honor the emperor, but do not worship him. So why don't you address that, Dad, before we go into more detail about slaves and wives?
1: Yeah, it's the same argument, actually, that occurs in Romans 13, namely... That you are to be obedient for conscience sake, but for Christians, the conscience is conscience that is bound to the will of God. so if you obey uh, the um of uh, the i if you honor the Emperor, it is because you are doing it out of reverence to God, and that means if the Emperor of course violates the divine institution and is not um, Punishing the evil doer, but vindicating the evildoer and oppressing the innocent, the conscientious obligation to obey is is um, decommissioned in the in the very act. Um, in fact, conscientious at that point, conscientious obedience to the emperor becomes conscientious disobedience, which we know in length caused the historical uh, Peter. Uh, cost the historical Peter his head.
0: Uh, And I think the specific language here, again, is worth paying attention to. Uh, Notice the contrast between honor everyone, love the brotherhood. So there is this universally extended respect. uh, In in more modern language, I would call it toleration. That everybody is treated decently, respectfully, but you don't have to love and approve of everyone. And I think something about uh, where our... um, Christian ethic detached from actual Christianity as one of the things making our society crazy because everyone is demanding everyone else to love them and approve of them 100%. And you cannot do that. You, you couldn't anyway. Um, but you honor everyone. I think that's fair. I think that's a legitimate demand to make, especially if we connect it back to everyone being made in the image of God. Sure. But with the brotherhood, you know, the the community of faith, you know, the the inner circle, yes, them you love. And that is where you actually go to, through the process of the costly business of loving people, which is not easy. <laughs> you know, it's it's so easy to, to talk about love, like that's this easy thing to do. It's like, oh, yeah, I should love people instead of hate them. You know, loving people is challenging. So, and it has to be like meaningfully in person, I think, rather than a, you know, a, a um, generalized principle of behavior. And then both of those fall under fear God, which uh, always for me implies don't fear anyone or anything else. And then it's it, it's in that kind of having all those relationships properly sorted out that you are, as a free person, you can honor the emperor and the office that he occupies, but you don't worship him. And in fact, you don't fear him either.
1: Right. Very good. Yeah.
0: All right. So now let's talk about slaves and wives. So the first thing to say here is that um, we can infer from the way this letter is written that this early Christian community had a lot of slaves, but probably not that many rulers or masters. Um, It had a lot of wives of non-Christian husbands, but probably not so many married couples who are both Christian, maybe some, and probably very few Christian husbands of non-Christian wives. And so this means that the church appealed to the people at the lowest level of society who were not given um, legal or moral standing on their own. And so just that fact itself needs some recognition and honor. It was actually doing what everybody nowadays knows that the church is supposed to be doing, which is, is not making friends in high places, but speaking to the, the neediest and the the least free and the least able.
1: And this is where we're really required to put on our historical imagination caps and think a little bit differently than we usually do. Because as I think you're going to point out shortly, this uh, exhortation to the slaves and the wives was actually treating them in Christ as moral agents, right, and not not uh, not disenfranchising them as people who should be talked to through the slave master or through the husband, but the epistle is directly addre- addressing the Christians who happen to be slaves or wives. That in itself is significant, and because it's bypassing the presumed authority of slave masters and husbands in context. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we are so trained nowadays to think revolutionary means a structural tear down and redesigning, but the real revolution that happened here was on the entirely direct and personal level. Here, I'm just going to read a little passage here from the David's commentary. He says... For society at large, at that time, slaves were not full persons, and thus did not have moral responsibility. For the church, slaves were full and equal persons, and thus quite appropriately addressed as such. The church never addressed the institution of slavery in society, for it was outside its province, but it did address the situation in the church where no social distinctions were to be allowed, for all were brothers and sisters, however shocking that was to society at large. This is a case where, again, contemporary Westerners just take it for granted that slavery is bad. They're horrified when they find out places where it still happens, even if not under that name, for all intents and purposes, there is still slavery in the the world. We all assume that all human beings are equal and should be treated treated equally under the law and morally and treated decently. This is where it comes from, is not by tearing down the Roman institution of slavery, however odious and however deserving of it it might have been, but simply by saying, you, slave, you are truly a person, a full person in Christ. You have been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, and therefore you have moral agency. The power of that to upend the world is, I think, very little recognized anymore. But that, that is where the true power lies.
1: You know, I want to match your quotation from that commentator with something from Douglas Horink's commentary on First and Second Peter Brazos series, which I think corresponds to what you're saying here. He's quoting actually Karl Barth's commentary on Romans, uh, this passage, overcome evil with good. And Bart writes, what can this mean but the end of the triumph of men, whether their triumph is celebrated in the existing order or by the revolution? And how can this end be represented, if not by some strange, as it were, not doing, precisely at the point where men feel themselves most powerfully called to action? End quote. And then Heron c- continues, that strange not-doing takes the shape of service mercy and forgiveness which is the true form of personal social and political justice revealed in Jesus the messiah and is therefore also the messianic political revolution to be enacted by the church End quote.
0: It, you know it really calls to mind for me there there's been a lot of um sifting of Western aid to developing nations. Um, And, you know, Westerners in certain respects have been certainly very generous with money and with uh, investments to developing nations. But um, a lot of the critique that comes back from these places is that it is done in such a way that the benefactor-recipient relationship remains totally unaltered, that actual moral agency uh, as well as any other kind of agency is denied to the recipients there is poor communication you know it's what westerners think the developing nations need or want not what they actually need or want and i i, I just i think it's very interesting to see how the the passion for being the benefactor and the moral agents can actually be a way of denying it to other people. And in that respect, this slave, the, the addressing slaves as moral agents is not only empowering to them, it's also a, a very precise kind of rebuke to those who don't like the moral agency of their lessers and want to make sure that they get to stay at the top of the righteousness mountain.
1: You know, when I was a missionary theologian in Slovakia, I'm sad to say I witnessed this phenomenon many times because our role there involved hosting a lot of visitors from the United States. And it was often cringeworthy the way they acted (laughs) with bringing their their little gifts which they thought were so important. And the humiliating ways in which they talked about their gifts that they were giving to the this church emerging from so many years of suffering and oppression. I remember in the 1990s, when President Bill Clinton had made the phrase famous, I feel your pain. I remember cringing when a delegation of the women of the ELCA came passing through and stayed for all of two hours. And then made an ostentatious presentation of a small financial gift with the spokeswoman pronouncing melodramatically, We feel your pain. And I, I just about died there listening to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've read some uh, uh, Eastern European feminism. And they're they're, uh, just as womanist theologians have often not been impressed with feminist theologians within the US, Eastern European feminists are often very frustrated with Western European and North American feminists. So, all right. Well, I think we've established the point. So uh, after addressing the slaves in this way, then Peter uh, moves back into uh, Christology because he says, yes, uh, slaves do suffer unjust mistreatment. He says it's better to suffer because you've done nothing wrong than because you've done something wrong and deserve it, which um, is cold comfort at best, but it is true. Uh, he calls it a gracious thing to suffer. And then Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And this is really cool. The Greek word example is hypogrammos, which means the pattern letters that a school child traces in learning how to write. What a wonderful, I, I'm often, um, uh, uh, irritated by imitation of Christ's language because it almost immediately becomes overweening. <laughs> but I think this is a lovely way of looking at it, that there are pattern letters for you to trace out like a school child learning. Then Peter goes on to say, in Christ there was no sin, no deceit, no reviling of his revilers, no threatening, but entrusting himself to God the judge. By his wounds you were healed, that's from Isaiah, for you were straying like sheep, that's all over the Old Testament, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseal Seer of your souls, and um, the the commentary I read um, observed the fact that um, Gentile converts to Christianity who were suddenly suffering this oppression, persecution, or just bad reputation. Probably didn't have any practice at it. Um, they had been part of the establishment. And, you know, they converted in joy and enthusiasm to this wonderful good news and did not in any way expect it would um, come back to bite them. Uh, by contrast, um, you know, Jewish believers already had a well established theology of both suffering and martyrdom. So they had more resources to draw on. So part of what is probably going on in this letter is Peter is trying to help people with no past experience of being at odds with their community religiously or morally come to terms with it. And, you know, he, uh, Peter often says, don't be so shocked that this is happening to you, okay? This, this is not a sudden betrayal or a disproof of your faith. This is actually what happens.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And though I, I would imagine that the congregation of wives and and slave, uh, slaves, enslaved people in, in, um, in uh, these regions of modern-day Turkey would have their own experiences of oppression that they could draw on. Uh, and the important differentiation that the epistle is making is make sure if you're going to suffer, suffer for the name of Christ. Don't suffer because of your own um, uh, reversion or falling back into pagan ways of being.
0: Well, then we move on to wives and husbands, uh, more addressed to wives than husbands. Um, and again, so the, the startling thing here is to address a woman as a moral and religious agent at all. At the time, women, of course, obeyed their husbands, did what they said, including in matters of religion. Um, the church was probably a place where women found a level of freedom and authority that they had never experienced before. And not surprisingly, it probably went to their head sometimes, probably wasn't always exercised. In the the best way, and um, could have even uh, yeah, the my commentator here suggests that um, some of this may have been deeply embarrassing to their husbands, and um, I know that this is this is all a, a bit difficult for twenty first century people to swallow. But I think we all know examples of a spouse on either side who habitually humiliates the other spouse, and that is always so ugly and painful to behold. So. Um, uh peter also holds husbands to account i don't think there's anything wrong with holding wives to account for being respectful of their husbands and not humiliating them in public you know however else you map out the relationship between the two that seems like a bare minimum of a of a social and loving obligation to your spouse not to humiliate them
1: it's part of honoring all people isn't it <laughs>
0: Yeah, right, right. And so what Peter says, is is what he is implying here is that what the wife's task to do is to show respect and honor and to the appropriate extent obedience to her husband, but help him to grasp that she is doing it as a free agent in Christ, who for the sake of God continues to love and honor her probably non-Christian husbands, And so to help the husband see the shift in her own motivation. And, you know, Peter is optimistic about the impact that could have you know uh given the disproportionate power a husband could control his wife by threats by you know uh, bullying, by yeah. abuse yeah bullying uh, withdrawing wealth uh even divorcing her so for her obedience to be motivated not by fear of the horrible things he could do but freely and lovingly out of her new relationship to god peter is optimistic that this will uh, engage the husband's attention in a positive way
1: Right. It's, it's, it's kind of, Sarah, reminds me of the concept of patiency that I've developed in my systematic theology, that there is this, um, this eschatological virtue of not forcing things, but persistently, faithfully, perseveringly, um, showing forth, manifesting in the very place in which you're located in life, the alternative ethos that you're given in Christ.
0: Yeah, very good. Um, And uh, as another example of this alternative ethos, uh, Peter here famously exhorts women to dress modestly. And uh, in our culture that has often been interpreted about not being on sexual display, which I'm pretty sure was not happening outside of, you know, Aphrodite's temple anyway. This is not probably an (laughs) issue that that Roman wives needed to be told. It has probably almost certainly to do rather with wealth. And um, for it, it, I think it's very powerful because it's calling women, and wives, sexual partners, female sexual partners of men to say that you are not on, uh, you are not your display case or trophy for the man in your life. You know, you do not wear your wealth so that he can show off his wealth uh, through you or show off his status through your beauty or something like that. Um, you are uh, an integral person in your own right. You are not a display case. And also that will have the secondary effect of of reducing the wealth status conflict between women within the congregation between wealthier wives and and poorer wives. So I think that is that is a, actually a very still very pertinent criticism of of how sexual politics actually play out both between men and women and uh, women's competitions with each other.
1: The more things change, the more they remain the same, no? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like human nature holds steady over all these many generations.
1: Let's just make Sarah, Wait. Let's just make. Let's just note here the hermeneutical problem. We are trying to explain this text on its own terms, in its own day and age, in its own culture, and that means, therefore, that we don't simply lift out these in these uh, these uh, exhortations to men and women and slaves and so forth and think that we can woodenly apply them to any uh, social situations today there's a whole process of interpretation a very sophisticated and careful process of interpretation that has to has to sift these words and see how we could appropriately apply them in our kind of situation and i think here again the the takeaway here in all of this is that first Peter, for all of its apocalyptic uh, fervor, wants the Christians to be uh, incarnate, wants them to be uh, in into the culture that they actually belong to, um, and not to you know form some kind of sect that withdraws from the world, but to live into the world that they've actually been placed in, and at the same time in that deep involvement, engagement with the actual world in which they live in. The revolution of of, uh, roles and ethos in Christ is to take place within that and not as something separated out from it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, very much the metaphor of... uh, uh that Jesus uses in the kingdom of God is like a woman who sifted leaven into three measures of wheat. And you know what happens? Uh, leaven is teeny, teeny, tiny, but let it sit for a few hours and suddenly it will make the whole lump of dough rise and aerate. Um, I think that is, is much more the preferred metaphor uh, or, or the approach.
1: That reminds me of that. We discussed that book, by what was her name? Sarah Rood? Uh, about Sarah these, Rudin, yeah. Rudin Paul about, among the people. Paul among the people. Same kind of thinking there, yeah.
0: Yeah. So then to to wrap this up now, Peter does address husbands. Uh, He says they are to live considerately with their wives, which implies the sexual relationship between them as well as their whole domestic life together. And also um, my my commentator says that uh, the common translation of woman as the weaker vessel has been very much misinterpreted as if it's kind of a moral or mental inferiority. Uh, It is much more obviously the vulnerability. Women are the more vulnerable sex. This is an objective fact. Um, Men are not raped by women. Women are raped by men. There is uh, simply a bodily difference there that has to be managed culturally and morally because it's a physical fact. And so he goes on to say precisely because men always have the upper hand in these things, um, Peter calls them to account and says, don't treat your wife this way. You are not to be like this. You are to recognize that between you and before God, you are equals. Society may not agree, Okay, you know, you have to live in this society and make do with those things. But where it matters most in before God and between the two of you, you recognize that you are not to dominate and exploit your wife. And uh, if you do, it will damage your relationship to God. Amen amen i think you know it's interesting that you know you were just talking there about the 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 important work of interpretation we have to do to understand this in its own time and place but once we do like you said it is so relevant it is so pertinent it really speaks to things that we still struggle with now i think this is how the scripture continues to prove itself um even low these many many centuries after it was first written down because uh the it, it it's true. <laughs> it's it's true in the deepest way that truth is true.
1: Yeah, we, we don't have s- slaves in our society legally anymore, but we have a lot of poor people and we have a lot of working class people who feel that they are nothing but uh, slaves to a system that does not benefit them. You know, and certainly domestic relationships between husbands and wives are in terrible conditions these days. Uh, for many of the reasons that we're seeing on display in First Peter.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I know people with very high-level, well-paid jobs who are treated abominably by their bosses. You know this this relationship of being somehow subhuman because you're a little bit lower on the economic rank. I mean, obviously, it's it's very terrible for people who are are poor in the very literal sense, but you can experience um, a, a level of oppression that is very terrible, even at apparently a very high level of the of the economic ladder. All right, Dad. So this episode is going to run long because we've been talking for an hour and we're only halfway through chapter three. <laughs> so I think we're going to accelerate slightly and not go through every point. But uh, clearly our enthusiasm should come through. Listeners, go through and read First Peter slowly. Take it all in because there's so much good stuff. But we have to spend some serious time with uh, the latter part of chapter three, which is the Christology, which turns into baptismal theology, which turns into the resurrection and ascension. So I am going to read out this passage, Dad, and we will discuss it. So here we go. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him.
1: Yeah, wow, what a rich passage that is. It would take us take a systematic theology to unpack it, wouldn't it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe this is right up there with Romans, systematic theology in its own right.
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, let's just underscore the fact that for this epistle, Christ uh, suffering for our sins was an act of exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous, that has a moral purpose, a divine moral purpose uh, to bring us back to God, right? And that... um, And that applies, of course, and he's going to go on to say how that applies uh, through the analogy of the Noah and the ark and the salvation of those eight people. How baptism uh, now saves uh, those like the ark of Noah saved those eight people and um, that it applies to the believers on the authority of the risen Christ who is ascended and installed in majesty at the right hand of God, uh, and made the um, the Lord of the uh, of the creation and so forth. But what's fascinating in this passage is that Christ is said to have descended to the spirits in prison, the ones who did not obey <laughs> at the time of Noah, and then later he's going to say about how he. Um, Uh, In chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. I think that is really quite remarkable, that both the particularity of Christian doctrine of salvation, that it comes through the particularity of baptism into Christ, This very particularity includes a kind of universal hope that is behind the uh, whole idea in the creed of the descent into hell and the interpretation of the descent into hell or into the realm of the dead as Christ victoriously proclaiming um, the gospel to those who had been disobedient in life.
0: So, Dad, I have a theory. Which is that, as the gospel starts being proclaimed, especially among Gentiles, it raises the acute question of, well, if this is what it takes to be saved, then what about my ancestors?
1: Exactly.
0: And needless to say, living in Japan, this has become a more acutely interesting question to me. So I think in 1 Corinthians, when Paul alludes to baptism on behalf of the dead, he does not, like, commend it he it's it's said in a rhetorical question like uh, to defend the fact of resurrection at all he says otherwise what do you mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead so he alludes to a practice the corinthians are undertaking and we all know the corinthians should never be anyone's ideal of church practice (laughs) right okay but but it seems to me that is an allusion to a way that these gentile believers were coping with their anxiety about their ancestors what i see happening in first peter and, and that's the only. Only reference we have in the entire early church, basically to like Mormons, uh, that we have to baptism on behalf of the dead. But here in First Peter, we see these allusions. Uh, it's really not very clear what they mean, what it means to proclaim to the spirits in prison and to preach to those who are dead. But my reconstruction of it is that this was another solution landed on to talk to people, Gentiles especially, about their dead ancestors, built on the strength of the fact that Christ did die, and in whatever whatever this means, he descended to the dead before he was raised again in glory. Which means he must have had access to the dead, whether that means in the holding tank of Sheol or in the punishment of hell or Gehenna or however you want to look at it. And so I think this was the solution that actually worked to address people's anxiety about their pre-Christian ancestors, and that's why it ends up being encoded in the creed.
1: I think that's absolutely right, and that's also why in medieval Christian Europe has become passe and is replaced by the doctrine of purgatory because it's already, the ancestors have already been Christians for many generations by that time. But I think you're right, that's the original sense of this teaching. And I think I was always struck by this when I read Wolfhard Pannenberg's Jesus, God, and Man many, many years ago, 40, more than 40 years ago. When he interpreted this passage and and to me it was such a it was such a comforting uh, thought, and uh, one that I still hold to be true that while God entrusts the Gospel of Christ to the church, he does not abandon the gospel to the church. <laughs>
0: Yes, very good. And I, I think it's just so important to keep in mind, as God is already saying in, in the Old Testament, I do not desire the death of a sinner. Nobody goes to eternal punishment on the technicality of been, having been born in the wrong place at the wrong time. The whole Jesus project is about saving people, not finding more excuses to condemn them. So, you know, we 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 cannot, um, we are not entrusted with the full knowledge of how this happens, what descent to hell or talking to dead ancestors looks like. It does not excuse us from the obligation of evangelism and mission. But uh, our orienting point should be God's intention is to save, not to condemn. And I think this is further evidence of that.
1: Preach on, sister.
0: (laughs) Okay. And then one more thing from this passage that I think is hugely important. So, Dad, I can't tell you how many Bible-believing Baptists, Evangelicals, Pentecostals will piously and passionately assert to you that baptism don't do a doggone thing it is only an act of human obedience and they are obeying the bible whereas we especially infant baptizers who then make the further absurd claim that baptism saves are not bible readers. I'm sorry. 1 Peter 3:21 in the Greek, the word, the noun baptism and the verb saves are right next to each other in order to fit English semantics you have to rearrange it. But 1 Peter 3:21 says plainly and unambiguously baptism saves. Not even God saves through baptism, which of course theologically is how we would reconstruct it, but that baptism itself saves. Baptism is the thing that translates you out of the flood of sin, death and the devil into the safe ark in which Christ's um Life, death, and resurrection and ascension, and sitting at the right hand of the Father is made effective in your life. Dad, baptism saves. Why don't these people read their Bible, these Bible readers?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think here you simply have to point out that there's a great possibility, a great, possi- a great uh, probability of misunderstanding and talking past each other. If I paraphrase, paraphrase this way, The Holy Spirit unifies us with the death and resurrection of Christ, and that is how God saves us. I I doubt that any Baptist would disagree with me. Um, And if I say baptism as a ceremony, a a coming-of-age ritual performed mechanically um, um, uh, does not save I don't think a whole lot of Lutherans would disagree with that statement either, at least the ones who remember that the sacraments do not work ex opere operato. So, we have to really try to get, drill down on this misun, mutual misunderstanding. The real issue ha, is historically whether the Holy Spirit, in fact, works through the sacrament, through the through the washing of water in the name of the father son and holy spirit works in the way that i've specified and then it's also a question of church discipline to whom should the church uh, administer this this washing in the name of the triune god and what are what are the presuppositions of that what are the what is the discipline of baptism
0: I mean, granted all that, I have written an entire book on this topic and have called to account reckless infant baptizers who are doing it rotely and automatically, not out of a gospel passion to administer the sacraments at the Holy Spirit's command. Nevertheless, the Bible says right here that baptism saves, so building a baptismal theology on the fact that baptism does absolutely zilch is clearly faulty.
1: Well, I think a good Baptist would say it doesn't do zilch. It's just that what it does is done by the believer.
0: But it doesn't say that. It says baptism saves you. So they're, they're getting their subjects and objects messed up.
1: As an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's the belie- believer's work and believer's baptism.
0: Well, they should read my book and they would be set right on this. And all of their concerns would be honored, but they'd actually be real Bible Christians by accepting the salvific work of baptism.
1: Okay, I, I, I surrender. Let's go for it. <laughs> Let's finish 1 <laughs> Peter here
0: okay so uh we're now in uh chapter four we already talked about uh preaching to the dead so we'll continue on from there um Peter says the end of all things at hand, pretty clear evidence that this is written with an apocalyptic horizon. So as a result, be self-controlled and sober minded. Um, I love this because so much like end of time uh, panic literature um, excuses all kinds of bad behavior. And Peter says, well, the end of time is coming. All the more reason to be self-controlled and sober minded. Uh, He says, we should love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Practice hospitality. Use your gift as a steward of God's grace in order that everything in God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Uh, Then he goes back to suffering again. Don't be surprised. You share in Christ's suffering. You will also be glorified with him. Um, And then another Trinitarian, what we would call Trinitarian appeal. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then it talks about judgment, and uh, judgment is hard enough on believers. How much more so for unbelievers? So there's a ton there. What would you like to pick out?
1: <laughs> uh, the end is near. Well, okay. again, is again, again, <laughs> again. You know, if you if you're an apocalyptic literalist, then for two thousand years you've had a difficult time with this passage. But if you are an If you deliteralize apocalyptic the way I recommend, then you can recognize in times of suffering and persecution, not the end of time, but the time of the end breaking in upon you. And so there can be many ends of the world, uh, as many as the varied Christian experiences of trial and and tribulation um, and so forth. And the ultimate end of the world is something that is beyond our pay grade even to talk about. Um, But in the interim, we can certainly talk uh, about when when suffering befalls us for the name of Christ. We can certainly say with spiritual certainty, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded.
0: And I would add, everybody's end of all things is at hand sooner or later, because we all individually die. And that is our personal apocalypse. So That's right. yeah. Yeah, in a sense, this is also always preparing us and calling us to be ready to die at any time, whether it's going to be peacefully in old age in our sleep or more dramatically and violently um, earlier in life, earlier than it ought to be. Okay, so now let's wrap it up quick with chapter five. There is an exhortation to leaders to shepherd the flock not for gain, to do it eagerly, willingly, and not domineeringly be an example to your people. Uh, and remember always you are a partaker in Christ's future glory. Again, so much language of glory here. And someone who will receive the unfading crown of glory and says, yeah, young folks, be subject to your elders. That's hardly surprising. Um, and, uh, but then he also says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So even though we do have structured relationships in the church and we have leaders and, uh, I guess, followers by implication, nevertheless, there is a mutual submission, mutual humility that should characterize all of our relationships. And those who are humble to one another will be exalted by God because he cares for you. That's just a, it's a nice, simple statement. God cares for you. And then, uh, but then Peter issues a warning. Um, I, I, quote this not infrequently, uh, keep an eye out because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Whenever people ask me why is congregational life so difficult and why are there schisms and fractures and factions and uh, betrayals and heartache within the congregation, I always say this is why. Because the congregation is the place that the devil most needs to prowl and attack because the congregation is the beach head. It is the Normandy beach of the invasion of God into the world. And so all the more reason for the devil to focus his attention on it. So, um, you know, I I have a very happy congregational life right now, which um, exceeds almost every other congregational experience I've had. You know, I've had devastating ones. I have been adjacent to devastating ones. Um, I I think we all Christians would benefit from some more realistic talk about what we're up against in the risk that is a congregation and um, what it means to be on the lookout for the devil's attack, not in a paranoid kind of way and not to treat each other like the source of the problem, but to recognize that uh, the, the, the prowling lion wants to devour this flock of sheep and we have to be prepared to protect it.
1: You know, so much modern theology from the time of Immanuel Kant onward, religion within the limits of reason alone. Has given up on so called ecclesiastical Christianity. Now, no doubt the form, the the ossified form of the church under late uh, Orthodoxy in the 17th and 18th centuries was something that needed to be uh, torn down and rebuilt, no question about that. But uh, I see an awful lot of clergy and theologians and who have just given up on congregational life, just given up on congregational life. That's not where it's at. They want to use the ordained ministry or the empty churches that they occupy as clergy as platforms for their other causes and so forth. That's all it is. It's just a platform for them to pursue some other cause. And that congregational life, the way that First Peter describes it, with this mutual submission to one another in love and understanding that beloved community, that patiency, that mutual bearing of one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ, understanding that as the very revolution of God, as as God's own cutting edge of his kingdom, uh, is something that I think is sorely lacking in the contemporary church. And um, the... uh, So your point about the the devil being the adversary that's destroying congregational life needs to be lifted up together with its opposite, the positive. That congregational life is the community of Christ taking, it's Christ existing as community, as uh, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it. And that's what the pastoral ministry is really all about.
0: Yeah, you know, it means we have to preach ecclesiologically and not just Christologically. You know, I I would so much rather talk all day long about what God has done and is doing for us, but I, I've realized how important it is to always be teaching a congregation what it is to be a congregation. Why should they know unless we teach them and help them understand it? And I think a, a lot of um, strife, I mean, not all of it obviously can be explained by lack of good teaching on what the church is, but surely it will help and it will help congregants also cope with, um, you know, internal stresses and conflicts um, if they understand what a church is and also what a church isn't. We've done episodes talking about this, but it bears repeating.
1: And all, just to connect that with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as we've, we've seen in First Peter, that the Spirit's work is, is social, not narrowly individually. You are a holy race, a chosen people, right? A, a royal priesthood. These are all social concepts that the spirit is working to create this kind of community, this kind of genuinely countercultural community in the world.
0: So then to finish off, this isn't the very last verse of the epistle, but it is a good conclusion to it. Peter finally says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you.
1: Well, that's that's how we live, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's also in the future. You know, it is saying that there is suffering, but that the God of grace who has called you will do these things himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we, we live in, in this in-between tension, and we are suffering right now. But the promise is sure and certain and can be a source of strength and hope for us right now.
1: That takes us to the end of the letter, right?
0: Yep. That's it. I mean, there's the greetings. We've already talked about those, though.
1: Okay. Well, I hope this uh, is, uh, inspires our listeners to go read First Peter uh, and read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest.
0: As always with these scripture lessons, yes, this is not a substitute for, but an incitement to spend more time with the scriptures. Next time on the show, we will be discussing Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Christology.